Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space and welcome to episode number 158. I'm your host, Mark Shapiro, and my guest in this episode is Jared Yates Sexton. And Jared is an author, and he wrote a book called The Man They Wanted Me to Be, Toxic Masculinity and a Crisis of Our Own Making. Jared and I had circled each other for some time trying to actually connect, and I'm really glad that we both persisted and that we were able to have this conversation. And it's an interesting one. The, the background here is we are discussing the topic of toxic masculinity in America, and we are, we are both white, cisgender American men having this conversation. And Jared in this book brings out his lived experience and juxtaposes that with really interesting and important science to help lay out the origins of toxic masculinity, what it is, what it's not, and really unsparingly show the consequences. And it is an extraordinary book. And this really was a special and important conversation. Before we get to the discussion, I just want to remind everyone, you can find Explore the Space wherever you download your shows. Whichever platform you use, you'll find Explore the Space. Please do leave us a rating and a review. It really helps us out. And definitely subscribe so you make sure to get all of the good content. And please do go back and look to the archive of Explore the Space. It's absolutely packed with evergreen shows. You can find the entire content wherever you download your podcasts or also on our website, www.explorethespaceshow. You can email me anytime, mark at explorethespaceshow.com. And you can find me on social media. I'm very active on Twitter at ETS Show and also on Instagram at Explore the Space Show. This conversation with Jared was really special. It, in my view, is fairly unique and I think it lays out some really important ideas and basically puts a huge challenge that intermixes with so many of the topics that we talk about on Explore the Space, whether it's climate change or gun violence or gender equity. There is some connective tissue with this idea of toxic masculinity in all of those. And it's really, really informative. And Jared has done a really important work with his book. And he is incredibly candid and incredibly honest. And he's really smart. So I think you will get a lot out of this. And I look forward to hearing what you all think of it. So please do let me know as well. Without further ado, Jared Yates Sexton. Jared, welcome to Explore the Space. Thank you so much for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me. We've we've circled each other for a while. This show hit some bumps and bruises to finally come together. I, I tell you what, the last few months have been hectic. Yeah. So I'm just glad you're able to finally get me on here. I, I am delighted. And, and you know, I, I like to make sure that the show, that the episodes are sort of evergreen, but I think it is important given the subject matter before us today to timestamp this episode a little bit that Congress has convened the first day of public impeachment hearings today. And they're playing on the TVs that we both probably have on silent right now, as we're doing this conversation. That's right. And, and not to get too political for people, but I mean, Jim Jordan has basically tried to dominate the entire hearings by yelling at people (laughs) and sort of like, uh, asserting his masculinity. Uh, I I was getting, I was getting ready for this conversation thinking about that. It's, it's, it's not without a sense of irony and a recognition that timing is everything. Well, there you go. We are going to jump into a subject matter that I have spent, I've spent time with your book, the man they wanted me to be. And it rattled me. It shook me up. 
the man they wanted me to be, toxic masculinity, and a crisis of our own making. And I think as we step into this, let's just sort of set the framework because of what you're writing about. You and I are approximately the same age, and I don't know your age, but just based on the timestamps that are in the book, we're both white men, we're both Americans, we're both heterosexual. That's the playing field that we're on as we approach this subject matter of toxic masculinity. That's exactly right. And and that's what the book was intending to do. Um, it, it's intended to be a look in the mirror that um, white cisgender men uh, need to, to, to look at themselves and really reconsider the things that we think are concrete, established ideas, um, including who we are, what our personas are, what reality is, and, and why we do the things we do. Because uh, unfortunately in this country, and, and of course we have plenty of time to talk about this, um, this idea of masculinity that we have, particularly this old traditional idea of masculinity, what, what we're going to come to refer to as toxic masculinity, um, it really plays upon people's insecurities to try and live up to this persona or this character that isn't real, that men are supposed to be strong and stoic and invincible. And what ends up happening is um, men end up becoming injurious to themselves and the people around them and their society at large. And it's a, a really, really ugly cycle that um, that we don't need to be involved in anymore. We can reject this and we can find a better way. I like the way you bookended that statement with basically what I'm hearing is the book itself and this idea and the time that we're in is it is a call to action. The first step in that call to action is the act of introspection to look in that mirror. As we do that, let's make sure we are understanding what the term toxic masculinity is and also is not because it's a charged word. I think it means different things to different people. You created this journey for us to go on through your own deeply held and very thoughtfully articulated personal journey that as people read it, who are white American cisgender men will say, yup, yup. Okay. That didn't happen to me. Yup. Yup. Okay. Now I'm crying. That's the journey that you take us on. And it's difficult. Take us through, first of all, when we say the term toxic masculinity, what are we saying it is? And then let's get to what is it not? Well, first things first, and, and this is the, the, the absolute first thing that we have to set is what, what these terms are. Uh, what we're actually talking about right now is gender, which is this social construct. People a lot of the times, and this is where the problem really starts, is where people start thinking that gender is somehow or another biological, and it, it is not. There's a difference between sex and gender, and they both have different things going for them. When we think that there is a dichotomous gender, which is masculinity and femininity, that everybody has to fit into, all of a sudden we start prescribing roles for people. And, and as we all know, people are individuals. They do their own things. They express themselves in, in different ways. They believe in themselves in different ways. So when you just have these two boxes, masculinity and femininity, all of a sudden you start having to confine yourself within one of these two roles. And masculinity, as, as we've come to understand it in, in America, like a man has to be strong, He's not going to express himself because that would be to express some sort of weakness. Um, he has to always be aggressive. 
he always has to be a leader or the rock of, of his relationship or of his community or in his job. And, and those expectations aren't real. These are all side effects of so many different things, everything from social movements to how people work. Uh, a lot of this has its background in uh, the American economy and how we've moved from uh, an industrial society to now more of an informational society. Um, it also has its roots in everything. Everything from religion to politics to consumerism and how products are um, are marketed to us, and so men for so long have had to be confined within this little box of masculinity and these expectations. The problem is that the man that people are, are uh, that men are expected to be doesn't exist. They're expected to be perfect, and again, they're expected not to have emotions, and they're not supposed to express themselves. The problem is. When you don't live up to that, if you don't understand that gender is a construct and that those expectations aren't real, you start trying to overcompensate for what you would call an insecurity, right? So like everybody, every every man who's trying to perform this idea of masculinity as, as we know it is trying to be a different version of themselves. And so the disconnect between who they are and their deficiencies and how they don't meet up to these expectations, they can either choose to decide that the expectations are faulty or that they are faulty. And if they decide that they are faulty, they start lashing out. And that's where we have this idea of toxic masculinity. And this is an overcompensation. Um, so like if a man feels insecure about how he stacks up as a man, he has a real tendency to be more aggressive. He has a tendency to be more violent and angry, which is how a man is taught to express himself, right? That, you know, it's a little cliche, but the idea of men don't cry, when you get told that, well, how do you express yourself if you don't cry and you don't talk about your emotions, you get angry and you get violent. And, and unfortunately, this has led to a lot of really, really bad situations where men, first of all, they injure themselves. Uh, we're talking about substance abuse. We're talking about self-harm. We're talking about the fact that, and, and of course, this is something we're going to talk about. Men don't seek out uh, treatment for uh, injuries. They don't seek out treatment for their mental health and their, their bodily health. And the people around them, whether it's wives or children, oftentimes are the target of the internal uh, insecurities that men have. So they will actually lash out against the people around them. And socially and politically, they lash out to the world around them. And so you actually see a lot of men who are insecure about who they are. They'll take certain political stances like, I don't know, support a Donald Trump or, you know, fight against global climate change. And these sort of things that have, for uh, different reasons, been gendered to be masculine. Um, and, and what it isn't is masculinity itself, because masculinity is not even necessarily a negative thing. Um, personally, and, and just to punctuate this, um, I express myself masculine. I, I, I do. Like, I'm sitting here talking to you, and you can't see me, but I'm sitting here wearing a flannel and jeans and my shit-kicking boots. Like, that's who I am. Like, I have a, I have a decent beard going. Um, I like to express myself that way, but that's my choice. And there's a difference in understanding that that is a choice and that's a performance than understanding that that is an expectation that when I'm short of it, I have to somehow or another overcompensate. I'm having an emotional response hearing you articulate <clears throat> this because that is a brilliant summary of the journey that so many of us have been on and that myself, both as a man, 
as a father of a young man who's three and a half, and as a physician who takes care of lots and lots of men and women both in my profession to see all of those ripple effects of that both internalization and lashing out behaviors that you describe and all of that, it it's a lot to take on board and I appreciate you summarizing it so well. I think it's important also to mention that your expertise comes from two places from my perception. One of them, of course, is your lived journey, but also is the fact that you are well steeped in what is a significant body of scientific literature around this. This is not anecdotal. This is this is a field of study. A good friend of mine, David Wexler, who is the director of the Relationship Training Institute and wrote a book called When Good Men Behave Badly. This is the stuff that his whole field and profession is built around. And I bring that up because it's easy to punch holes. And I cannot even begin to imagine the things that have been said about you and said to you. One of the easy ones to kick loose is this is just what you experience, and you're a wimp or you're a pussy or whatever. That's not the case that this is what you've just described. I am saying this to reinforce. This is where we are and we have to own that. Yeah. So for, for instance, my, my own personal journey is I, I, I'm, I grew up in this really, really small Indiana town, and I grew up in a, an extraordinarily poor family. I'm talking uh, factory workers, laborers, uh, a really, really poor, uh, barely able to feed ourselves sort of family. Uh, and I grew up in a lot of dysfunctional, abusive situations where I had father figures who, um, and, and this is something I think a lot of men are aware of, because one of the ways that masculinity and particularly toxic masculinity gets sort of uh, baked in is um, we, we get abused. And, and a lot of men are basically abused by fathers who have been abused by their fathers and so on and so forth. And you are abused until you become hard and callous and you sort of become so afraid of your emotions that you, you actually scientifically and psychologically, you can become completely severed from your emotions. I mean, this is, oh, it's awful. And, and, you know, they're, they're, you're exactly right. This isn't just anecdotal experience. This is actually a journey that we've all been damned to go down. I mean, um, you know, uh, men might have different situations. I, for instance, was in multiple abusive households um, where I would be beaten because I had emotions. Or I would be emotionally and, and verbally abused because, again, I had emotions. And in both of these um, men who would do those things, are, you know, insecure men themselves who are lashing out to try and prove their masculinity. Now, you don't have to come from my household in order to have gone through this. Um, this is well charted. This stuff, um, it, it starts from the very beginning and it goes throughout lives. I mean, the amazing thing that I found in researching this book is like the difference between what is socialized, what we learn from the people around us and through our experiences is vastly vastly different from the medical part of this, the scientific part of this. And what I ended up finding that shocked me the most is that when, 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 when we're born without any sort of socialization, without any sort of idea about what the world expects us, people find left and right that male babies are so much more emotional than female babies. And so what is actually sort, and, and not only that, but like biologically, men are actually like more vulnerable to diseases and chronic conditions than women are. And so what I started to find and what the literature has told me and what science has pointed to 
is that this idea of masculinity is actually a societal overcompensation for biological differences where men might actually be weaker than women. And all this time, we've just been trying to overcompensate for it, which blew my mind and and completely changed the way I looked at the world. I have to say, when I started writing the book, I, I certainly did not expect to find that. I, I think that that's an important point, especially this idea of overcompensation, because we we that term is used colloquially, it's used flippantly. But as I'm reading your book and thinking through my own lived experience and seeing what people share on social media and seeing other lived experiences in my professional work, overcompensation comes up a lot and it resonates. Can you tease out a little bit more when you use that term, what sort of reflections are you having and what sort of things are you seeing again or seeing happen? Well, you know, one thing that I've been thinking about is, you know, the the holidays are coming up and, and, you know, I, I'm planning on going home and seeing my family. And I, you know, a lot of the anecdotal stuff that I I, I give here, like I talk about my family and my experience with them. um, Sometimes it sounds like criticism, but, you know, I I look at the people in my family who are are part of this and I, I feel so bad that they get stuck in it because, you know, they have had to mortgage away large parts of their lives. They've they've had their own problems. And, and you know, the, the honest to God truth of it is that we're all in this. Like men, women, everybody are, are, are subject to this thing. It, it literally hurts everybody. So like at home, and some people might know this, like you, you probably have somebody in your life or maybe it's you who, you know, they they brag about themselves, you know, just in polite company around their family. There there will be a boisterous man who will brag about everything from how much money he makes to how many women he's been with to how successful he is, how cool he is. In my family, it's nothing to be at like a Christmas get together and for the men to pull out guns and clean them and, you know, show them off. You know, I was actually I was out in public the other day. I was having uh, like a dinner and there were people on two sides of me. There were two groups of men and one group of men. And and this is a larger public health crisis that I firmly, firmly believe has its roots in toxic masculinity. One group was talking about, you know, we have a spate of mass shooters in this country. Um, It's nothing anymore for, you know, droves of people to be killed completely out of nowhere, most of the time by insecure, radicalized young white men. And this uh, group over here on one side of me was fantasizing about how they would take down a mass shooter and like talking about the violence and how they couldn't, they wouldn't be killed in a mass shooting. And then on the other side of me, there was another group that was talking about how many guns they owned and, and how much they were worth. And the, the two groups, it seemed like, and they didn't know each other, but they certainly heard each other. They started competing over wow. who could be the most masculine. Yeah. And, in, and any guy who spent any amount of time in a locker room recognizes this. <laughs> right? That's the journey that your book takes us on for sure. Right. Because I, and you know, like everybody, uh, the, the thing that set this off was the, the Donald Trump access Hollywood tape that he, he dismissed his locker room, locker talk. room talk. That's right. Right. And, and the whole point of it is when men get together and I'm even talking about men who are friends and they're intimates and they're close, they're, they're both like, if you take two men, let's sit them at a bar, right. And always there's going to be sports on. 
because sports are the things that men engage in instead of engaging in conversations. It gives them something to talk about besides themselves. Even men who are aware of the gender construct of masculinity are afraid that the other men around them are going to judge them as being less than masculine. And so like men will actually compete with each other to see who can say like the most aggressive or offensive things or they'll they'll hide their emotions or, or they'll pretend like they're totally fine while their lives are crumbling. And so this overcompensation turns into a self-imposed exile or self-imposed jail that um, – has some really, really negative, hurtful consequences. That last part and that reflection back on overcompensation and, and how that is wrought, it's, uh, you know, the, the lived experiences are flicking past my eyes, the discomfort when you're young and your people are saying these things. And it's, yeah, it's, it's so difficult. But you also brought up this issue around narrative with gun violence. And for me, through this podcast, there's been a lot of explorations with extraordinary guests and leaders around gun violence and climate change and gender equity. It does feel like, and I'm really curious, given that you've written this book, you've done the reportage, you've done the tour, and you've met people from all over the United States. Is there some connective tissue there? Is this idea of toxic masculinity, this extraordinarily bizarre expression of what we perceive these constricting and rigid pressures that men perceive that they are supposed to live up to. Does it inform these larger narratives that are affecting society? Oh, absolutely. I, I, I take a lot of what's going on, particularly in this country. And, and you know, there's like international parts of it, but I, I really wanted to narrow this down to the idea of, of uh, again, white cisgender American masculinity, because I think this bizarre, unsettling period that, that we're in has so much to do with this idea of toxic masculinity. Um, the conversations I was having with um, particularly ex-members of neo-Nazi groups and white supremacist groups, um, they told me that the way that they recruited in particular was that they sought out insecure young white men and tried to give them this narrative of themselves, right? And, and a big part of this, you know, boys – when they're when they're playing around with themselves and their ideas of who they are, they do some really awful things sometimes. Um, you know, sometimes you'll you'll see like where a, a young man has like, I don't know, scribbled like a swastika in a public bathroom, right? Because he's trying to pretend like he's larger than himself and he's not afraid of the the fearful thing. Well, what ends up happening is this turns into a gateway for these people to get radicalized. And the really concerning thing is it completely mirrors what has happened with things like Islamic extremism. Um, the neo-Nazis and extremist groups in America are recruiting young white men the exact same way that ISIS recruits alienated members of their society. It's the exact same appeals, it's the same narratives, and it has the exact same endpoint, which is – Oh, if you're unhappy, here's a group that'll make you feel larger. Here's a cause that will make you feel larger. And in some cases, go out into the world and kill as many people as you can and show how strong you are. And show um, how strong you are, yeah. Right. And, and, you know, there's a reason why so many of these mass shooters are incel 
and and for those who aren't aware, this is this idea of uh, involuntarily in, uh, involuntarily celibate. Uh, it's an online subcommunity of men who are frustrated because they they are unable to uh, uh, get women, and so what they do is then they become radicalized through the internet and through these appeals, and then they go out in society and they'll kill dozens of people at a time. Now that is one part of it. Uh, politically, we have a lot going on. I mean, you know, again, like not to step on toes here, but Donald Trump is the ultimate embodiment of this. This is a person who talks tough all the time and pretends to be a bully. And if anybody knows or if anybody has experience with a bully, you know that bullies come from uh, insecurity. Right. These are people who are mistreating other people and abusing other people because they themselves are insecure. And this is a person who the moment that anybody critiques him, he loses his mind. Right. And this is a person who is obviously very insecure about himself. And in a way, he has built a base among men who in this new um, we could call it a progressive society, but let's just call it a society that's finally having some conversations we've been needing to have. Basically, Trump and a lot of the movements that we're talking about, everything from uh, anti-climate change to anti-diversity, these are people who have been told that they don't need to reconsider who they are the way society is telling them. And, you know, after, um, oh, it was the Kavanaugh confirmation. I think this was like a really big moment in American history where, you know, a lot of people were saying, well, as a man, this feels like a really dangerous time. I have to think about what I say now. But the truth is, Everybody else has to think about what they say. It's a privilege of white men for so long to just say whatever comes in their mind and not worry about how it affects other people. What we're actually talking about is a shared society. But these movements right now that I think are really, really dangerous say that men still need to be on top. They still need to be in control of a patriarchal society. And and I think that's what's happening politically and socially. And, and that's that's why a lot of this is happening right now. This idea of challenging privilege, I agree with that. And I think that what you're describing around this idealized masculine form and then people who are striving towards it, having all of this discomfort and disorder and disruptive behavior and violent and aggressive behavior in that pursuit. And then in parallel being told that pursuit of that norm don't do that because that norm itself is problematic. That that privileged position is problematic. That's that's a that's rocket fuel for for really outrageous behavior. No, it completely is. And you know, I I kept getting asked this question out on tour um, for this book, and the question was. What are men supposed to be now? Yeah, yeah. Um, and and you know this is like and and you know I heard it a few times and and it, it was like one of the hardest questions to answer because you know you're standing in front of an audience and they ask you like who am I supposed to be and 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 so you people never would heard. actually just say like look I want to take ownership of this question and I'm going to put it out there in public what am I supposed to be that that you experienced that. Yes, I did. But here's the thing. And and when this eventually dawned on me, it kind of blew my mind. So. For the longest time, masculinity has been a very, very narrowly defined idea, right? And and we could sum it up in like five or six characteristics. We can say what it is <laughs> right. and what it isn't. It's this right. narrowly defined thing. Yeah, and it's very inflexible. Right. But here's the thing. Instead of saying, who am I supposed to be now, as if it's a problem, 
why don't we look at that as freedom? So if I say, who am I supposed to be? Why am I looking to be told that? Why am I not really enjoying the fact that the jail door just got flung open and I now get to choose for myself? And and it's this weird dichotomous sort of mindset. And I was stuck in it for the longest time, too, because I was like, yeah, I don't know what men are supposed to be like. But the truth is men are supposed to be like whatever they want to be like as long as they take care of themselves and they don't abuse the people around them. And when that finally came to me, I started to realize that masculinity was the only sort of identity that was only going to have this narrow set and that even the idea of escaping it was so terrifying that we couldn't even imagine. But for people who never had that opportunity, and I'll speak from a person who, at least the way I, I feel and remember, grew up where I did feel empowered to have lots of choices and to grow in lots of different directions and try lots of different things and not feel like I was going to get hammered if I expressed my emotions, that I had a broad vista to look out upon. That if you didn't have that, and now all of a sudden, you're, you're the blinders are ripped off and you're staring out across this huge plane. I mean, you're talking about agoraphobia, fear of open spaces on a societal sure. level. And I can I could understand how that would be really scary. Yeah, it totally is. And and part of it. So I'm I'm saying here again, I'm talking to you after I've written this book about about masculinity and gender and I did all the research and I lived this for a couple of years and I'm still in the middle of it and I'm still out here advocating for it. I'm still expressing myself through the gender uh, uh, experience that I had had before I wrote the book. I I had a conversation with a class uh, a couple of weeks ago, and somebody said to me, because there's a part in the book, I I write it towards the end, where I'm talking about how things have sort of changed in this country. And, And for those looking for hope, like the idea of gender has just exploded in this country. And, and there, there's so much happening that is really, really exciting in it. But a student asked me, they said, and I wrote in the book, I said that I might be a completely different person if the if I had been raised in a different way, if I hadn't have been raised with these explicit gender expectations. And a student raised their hand after reading the book and they said, what other way do you think you could have been? And I had this moment. I was up, I was like up in front of this class and I actually, I started thinking about it. And this goes back to, again, like how we think about reality and how we think about who we are and how things work. I didn't have an answer because I can't even imagine who I would be outside of the self that I am. Like I understand it now. I understand how I ended up where I'm at and how I ended up who I am. But for me, particularly someone who grew up um, really drowning in this thing, it's still my default interface, right? It's still the way that I look at things. And so when I sort of try and think outside of it, I don't even really have the necessary field of vision, right? That that agoraphobia is so large and that fear of freedom is so large that I'm still locked in this old mindset that I just wrote a book about and I'm running around talking about trying how to destroy it. I mean, that's a, it's a really weird feeling. That's a huge ask. It's a huge ask to expect someone to be able to do that. And I would also submit then that the ways that people push back against someone like yourself who writes this book, someone like me who wants to learn more about it, the pushback is really easy and it's been very effective for my whole life. You're weak. You're being Mm -hmm. politically correct. This is just all, you know, you're just talking smart and this is just snobbery. All of those things, 
th- those are really easy reflexive ways that people push back. And there's way more offensive things that people push back. And I've experienced, and I cannot even, like, as I said, can't begin to imagine the much more aggressive and explicit pushback you've probably received. Those are reflexive. They're boring. I'm un- I'm not interested in that kind of pushback. I, there, there's, it's good to have dialogue, but that kind of reflexive nonsense that bores me. I'm not interested in hearing that anymore, but I am curious as you've, experience this journey of writing the book and pulling out your old memories and then discussing them in front of audiences across the country, has there been pushback that you've taken on board and said, you know what, that's interesting. And that feeds that, that, that helps our narrative that helps us on this journey. Well, you know, you're, you're exactly right about the response to it. Um, I, I certainly dealt with that because I'm, the, the story of the book um, is that I grew up in this situation where I was very, very suspicious of masculinity because I didn't fit into it. I was a, I was a sensitive kid. I was imaginative. I wanted to have conversations. I wanted to create. And, and so I, I really felt like something was wrong, but I didn't understand. I thought something was wrong with me. I didn't understand. Yeah. When we were growing Growing up sensitive was a pejorative. Oh, absolutely. To be told that you were sensitive was all of those things. You're weak, you're you're whatever. I'm like, but wait a minute. I'm I'm trying to experience things. I'm trying to reflect on how they're making me feel. I'm still doing them. I'm still playing team sports. I'm still competing my ass off. I'm still trying to win. I still want to beat other people. I'm still being aggressive and you know, but I'm also acknowledging the way that those experiences make me feel. But to be sensitive was, and I would say in some ways probably still is pejorative. Oh, absolutely. It is. I mean, I, I I did the exact same thing. Like I was trying to prove myself through sports. And then eventually what ended up happening was, um, I, and, and I sort of define that there's like five or six different characters that a man can take on in the world and be accepted in this paradigm. Let's have, and it. For, let's, let's have, okay. Five. Yeah. So let's, let's go through here. Okay. So, uh, there is the, there's the athlete. Yep. You can be, uh, the, the wealthy guy. Yep, absolutely. Um, uh, and, and, you know, which is another thing, like you're proving your, your worth through how much you can absolutely. accumulate. Yep. Um, let me see. It's been a while since I wrote this thing. What about, uh, what oh, about, Oh, we have the rural guy. Okay. So like, we, you know, like the farmer yep. is like the old, the old idea. And yep. these are all things. And, and, you know, if you, depending on what high school you were in, these were the guys in the high school, yep. right? That, because yep. we all sort of figure out who we are. <laughs> You're hitting um, all the and, check boxes. And what about the, what about the guy who gets all the women? Oh yeah, the player. The player. Yeah. That's the yeah. That's yeah. the word I was looking and, and, for. And there's this other one, and and I think everyone's aware of this. It's the outlaw, right? Yeah. Like the, out, <laughs> the outlaw archetype is the rock and roll archetype, right? right? Oh it's uh, it's the Keith Richards who goes out and does copious amounts of drugs and yeah. takes risks with his life. It's so funny and, that you say that because I remember listening to Johnny Depp read Keith Richards' autobiography. And I just knew Keith Richards from the music. I didn't know much about him. I made it about 45 minutes. I'm like, this guy's disgusting. I'm not spending any more time in this world. This is gross. This is nasty behavior. I'm out. And yet oh, yeah. he is elevated to this weird pantheon. Well, and and we all know it too. There, there's so many different versions of that. Um, I write about evil can evil in there, yes. um, you know. And, and then of course, um, the, there's like weird intersections. Like people who play football are sort of like the outlaws and the athletes, right? Yeah. Because they're out there playing a sport that they know is ruining their bodies and putting their lives on the line. Um, 
the the persona that I took over, and I actually did this because my father, um, and and there's a whole story about my father and how he eventually uh, overcame this thing, like right before he died, because his health, um, he died at the age of 59, way way too early because he did the usual man thing and and didn't seek help. But I took over the persona of my father, this outlaw persona where, you know, I went out and I binge drank and I used drugs and I took these dumb risks with my life. And, you know, the, I, I write in the book that there was this moment and, and you, you brought up the idea of these, these really, really lame rejoinders, right? Which is like, it's, it's, it's a practice nihilism. Yeah. And so basically you can, you can win arguments by saying, oh, you care, well, you're weak, and I don't care, so I'm strong, right? Yeah, and this yeah. is this is one of the paradigms of masculinity. But it's like I, back when I was younger, I, I would just get absolutely loaded and in, in order to prove that I was tough. I didn't care how much I was drinking or what I was doing to my body or my liver. And then I would, you know, drive drunk and just put my life and the life of so many people on the line, right? And I did all of that because that sort of practice nihilism – feels so much better than actually sitting and being introspective and going through who you are and confronting the problems in your life. And so masculinity tells you, and that's at the root of a lot of this stuff, you don't have to do that. Like you can pretend like nothing bothers you, but, and and let's bring this around to the medical thing. The truth is that men are terrified and this is the reason why men, uh, by huge numbers, they don't go to the doctor because and, – and again, you want to talk about contradictions. They don't go to the doctor because they're afraid of what the doctor might tell them. Do you right? think that there's a perception that the, the anger, the lashing out, the being vocal in, 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 in embeds a sense of immunity? And I ask this from the perspective, and I'm going to kind of take one of those parallel roads we hit on earlier, this idea around climate change, that the people who are really aggressive, this does not happen, that they think that by being that vocal, by taking people apart on social media, by saying horrible, aggressive, mean-spirited, just nasty things, and also just not recognizing it, that that somehow makes them immune from a flood or a hurricane or a wildfire, that somehow there's a sense that if I'm angry enough, it's not going to happen to me. Well, what ends up happening, and, and the way that I wrote about this was it, it's like wearing a costume until you forget that you're wearing a costume. Wow. Right? Yeah. So yeah. What, what ends up happening, and, and again, I'm sitting here talking to you. You can't see me, but I'm wearing my costume. Yeah. Right? Yeah, like yeah. I'm, I'm wearing my identity that makes me feel safe and strong. Um you know, and, and I, I say this and I always make a joke of it when I'm, I'm out in these places where I'm like, you know what, like being a, a public person, writing a book, talking about your life in this way is really, really scary. And so all of us sort of play a character until we don't have to play a character anymore. Wow. Yeah. Right. Yep. Um, yep. And, and it's one of these things where, um, you know, I think that you start out pretending like you don't care and you start out being a troll because you want to pretend like you're something stronger than yourself. You know, going back into like, you know, drawing a swastika in a bathroom, you start out drawing the swastika in the bathroom because you want to prove to yourself that you're strong. You end up wearing the swastika later in life because you forget that it was an act. And I think that wow. all of these, all of these political ideas that we're talking about are, are things that eventually like in the beginning you're in 
You're trying to work towards your indoctrination to understand who you are. And then later in life, you're just performing the way you've always performed and it becomes secondhand and you forgot that this was a character you were playing. So then how do we unwind that? Because it needs to be unwound because the characters that people take on, the personas, they cause genuine harm. The words that they use are harmful. The actions that they encourage or take are cause direct catastrophic harm. There's work to be done here. Are there, are there ways in which the needle moves in this conversation, right? You mentioned we're coming up on the holidays. We all joke about it. It's always on Saturday night live. Like there's always the one person at the table that said, how do we move through that? So that a, that person can be brought to a place where they understand that that isn't okay but also to feel embraced by their family that, look, we're going to go on this journey with you. You can take this costume off. You don't have to do this anymore. Society can take this costume off, right? The man who is sensitive, the man who is cerebral, the man who is quiet. These can also be characteristics that we can celebrate, embrace, coach, mentor, encourage, and develop. We want to move into a different space in this. Well, there, there's a couple things going on there. there. There's the personal change and then there is the, the social change. Yeah. Um, the personal change and, and, you know, you hear people who talk about this with addiction. There's like a moment of clarity, right? Yeah. You can hit rock bottom and you suddenly realize that the only place to go is up or further down and that's disastrous. Um, so I've actually I, I've had a lot of men who have actually reached out to me who either read the book because they were of a liberal persuasion and they wanted to prove to themselves, you know, it was like a purchase that they made to show who that they who they were as a identity. And then they read it and they suddenly realized that there were problematic aspects to themselves. Then there's another group of people who told me that they bought the book to rip on it. And then they suddenly recognized something in themselves in the book. And that, that those have been some of the more rewarding conversations. So there are there are people who can recognize it and they'll work on it because deep down, I think men understand they have a suspicion that they're playing a character socially. There's a different thing that we're talking about. And I think Thanksgiving, like you were saying, is a very, very important sort of uh, example of this. So when when we're talking about toxically masculine men and we're talking about whether or not you have a dad or a brother or an uncle or, or somebody or a husband in, in your life who is toxically masculine, unfortunately, we do a thing in our performance of, of, our, of our interactions. And that is eventually we just sort of write these people off and, and, and people, people know this, you know, it's the thing where it's like, Oh, that's dad. He'll never change. And so they, they sort of just make space for dad to be that way. Um, the answer to all of this, and, and this is the kind of amazing thing about it is that the idea of toxic masculinity is so fragile. And this is why, this is why toxic masculine guys can't even handle a little bit of criticism because it does, it disintegrates under even a little tiny bit of weight. If you just talk to men and you let them know, it's like, um, you know, I, I have a cat and sometimes that cat will get scared and it'll like run underneath like a, uh, a drawer or, you know, underneath a bed. And, and it's the same way that you have to talk the cat out. You have to let the cat know that it's safe and there's no danger and now it can come out. You kind of have to treat men like that because toxically masculine men are very fragile. And so one way to do it is to actually keep open com- communication lines. And, and, and when you ask them how they are, do not accept it when they just say fine. You know, ask them. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Right. And, and, and the, the, the sad truth is this is the really worrisome thing is even men who are friends with each other. And this is a big problem in this country. Um, men don't have friends. There, there are all of these studies out about mental health where men are completely isolated in relationships. They, they might have partners, but they feel like that they have to be strong and invincible around their partners. So they're not able to have intimate conversations with them. They have friends or buddies, whatever you want to call them. But those are the guys that they talk about, you know, uh, the, the basketball game or what's on TV, right? And they have these shallow conversations and they never actually check in with each other. And that actually has this really bad effect where two men, whether they realize it or not, become jailers for each other. Because while one is performing how tough he is and how he doesn't care, the other one is like, oh man, I, I, I'm not supposed to be, I'm not supposed to care. I'm supposed to be tough. And so they actually influence each other. But I, I personally, and just an anecdote real fast about my dad, my dad was one of those guys. My dad was, um, I, you know, I'll just call it what it is. He was, he was fascistic. You know, like that. I'm sure we've heard this. This is one of those parts about being a guy. Like he's the kind of guy that's like, oh, they don't need a trial. Just take them out and shoot them. Just take them or, shoot, right. Right. Or like when there's like a trouble in the Middle East, he'll say something. You know, he would say something like drop a bomb and turn it into a glass right. parking lot. Right. And, Put and everyone on a desert island. Right. And, yeah. and just take them out and be shot or something yeah. like that. Yeah. These are fascistic con uh, concepts and, and, and ideas. And that's actually where fascism comes from. It's, it's insecure men trying to, uh, you know, politically show themselves as being stronger than they are. Anyway, he was that he was racist. He was misogynistic. And eventually I, I tried talking to him for so long that eventually he just told me one day that he knew he had been performing this and that he hadn't had a real intimate conversation, a real honest conversation in 30 years. Holy and God. just having that moment with my dad and, and like this sounds ridiculous, but it's true. He went from being the guy who would buy the big jacked up truck and would, you know, swagger around and wouldn't talk about things and would say these things to being a guy who drove a Prius and talked about climate change. And that divide is so huge, but it's actually very, very narrow because one thing is an identity thing. And the other thing is, oh, now I can be myself and I can express who I am. Um, for him to have made that change, and unfortunately he died not long after, but for him to be able to make that change, I think it means that most anybody can make that change. And so you have to just keep working on it and you have to keep talking. That's the, that's the secret. Some of the connective tissue on so many of these issues that we've discussed on Explore the Space that I think have kind of, we've been able to recognize the connective tissue that toxic masculinity has, this piece of communicating, just having conversations, bringing people to the table, not reflexively pushing them away when they're trying to reflexively push you away and it's really hard to do, that there's real value in it. And I, the arc that the story takes in in The Man They Wanted Me to Be it does give that sort of note of inspiration. And there was one review of it that had a line that I just want to put here as we wrap up, because this is the one that captured it all for me. Every man, and I'll say again, every man will immediately understand in his gut what Sexton is saying, what you're saying in this book. That is a true statement. This book is inescapable. If you have the courage to read it, it's going to hit you. You will feel it. You will know it. 
And that is part of the hard work. That is part of the stepping into tension. I think this book is extraordinary. I think it's a really important book. And I think it was brave of you to do it because the the cadre that pushes so hard to reinforce the toxicity is exactly the one you were pushing against. And that is hard to do. And I want to recognize that. Well, I really appreciate that. I, I have to, I have to tell you, it, it was a really hard thing. I, I've, you know, I, I've had after it came out, it has been pretty exhausting in so many different ways, but it's also, it's been rewarding and also really heart wrenching because there are a lot of men who have been reaching out after this book who their stories look like mine or they have felt like I felt. And I, I wrote this book not really knowing if everybody else felt this way. I, I wrote this book kind of still feeling, for lack of a better term, like I, I like I was a freak, like there was something wrong with me. Yeah. And and this is that suspicion that's I think a lot of men feel that way. They feel like, oh, I'm not this perfect man. So I'm the I'm the outsider. I'm the one who's been alone and I'm the one who's had something wrong with him. But to have men reach out and and not only hear that they've gone through this, but that they've they've hurt other people and that they've hurt the people that they love most and that they've messed up with their kids or that they've messed up with their jobs or they've messed up in their life. Like to see that this is so widespread, it, it really broke my heart. But I, I think we're coming up on a point where it's changing and, and just being able to talk to men who are starting to recognize this stuff and are getting the help that they need and they're going to get their checkups and they're actually speaking with their children and their wives and their families. I, it, it makes me really, really hopeful that something's getting better. How do people find this information? How do they find your book? How do they tap into this sense of progress if they feel so motivated and so inspired? Uh, the book should be in most major bookstores. Uh, if they want to follow me, uh, talking about this and politics, I'm on Twitter at JY Sexton and my website is jysexton.com. Your Twitter feed is premium content. <laughs> I really enjoy your Twitter feed. It's fun. Thank you. I, I kind of wish we could just do away with Twitter and get past all of this, but I appreciate that. I, I, I'm with you in some respects and in some respects I am here for it. And so I, 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 I enjoy the journey. This was a really great conversation. I'm glad that you and I both persisted because we've been trying to put this together for like seven months. And I'm really glad that it happened. I'm really glad that I read the book. It was an experience. I'm glad that we were delayed because I got to relive the book again, preparing for this. So for all of that and for what's to come, for the work to come that we will all do together, I really appreciate it and thank you. Hey, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show. And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.